Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Michael Busker. Michael is a writer, researcher, and publisher. He's a former consultant writer-in-residence at DeepMind. And most recently, he wrote a book called Human Frontiers, which tries to answer the question, why has the flow of big, world-changing ideas slowed down? I found that book unusually fun to read, so I emailed Michael after I finished it to ask about doing an in-person interview, and here we are. We ended up talking about nuclear energy and the Adams Curve, Bell Labs, trends in research funding and academia, and even whether we're seeing stagnation in music and film. So it was pretty wide-ranging. It's one of those conversations where we just jump between a ton of pretty big ideas and speculations. Uh, I really enjoyed it. In fact, I think it's a mark of a good conversation that I ended up with more questions than I started. In particular, I still really want to know whether speeding up big idea generation and other kinds of progress could or should actually be major global priorities. And also, how feasible is an especially long or unrecoverable period of stagnation? Turns out that a whole field or community has recently emerged called progress studies, which is the study of the economic, cultural, institutional changes that have improved standards of living over human history. And it asks how that knowledge could be used to further improve the human condition. I've got to say that Luca and I are still really interested to think out loud about how progress studies, that is the kind of thing we'll talk about in this conversation, uh, relates to things like effective altruism and long-termism. So watch this space. Anyway, a big thank you to Michael Basker for joining us. And without further ado, here is the episode. A question we've taken to asking guests at the beginning is what is a question can be big or small that's recently been occupying you? One thing that I'm thinking about is a project that I'm just starting to work on. It's still in very, very, very early stages, but it's looking at the governance of technology and the kind of macro governance of technology to avoid long-term bad outcomes. But yeah, it's really early days. And maybe you could describe, without necessarily elaborating at all, what some of these governance challenges are, what some of these mechanisms are, just to give a taste. So uh, just just a little taste, something that I've, I've just become... It has become a bugbear of mine when researching this project is so often you read books or articles or, or even podcasts um, about technology and people always say that um, because we created technology, we can ultimately control it. Um, and, you know, that's just ridiculous because who is the we? You're talking about humanity, but humanity doesn't work as a sort of single agent. Humanity is full of cross-purposes and people with different incentives and agendas and so on. So appealing to a we in the control or governance of technology is, is just useless at the minute. So so one big challenge is, is how can the world constitute a meaningful we that might be invested in solving this this problem. And I suppose we'll touch on this general phenomenon later where pretty much everyone agrees something will be good, but it doesn't happen. Yeah. And there's an interesting question there, why not? Um, but we're going to be talking about your book called Human Frontiers. As I take it, the thesis of the book is that big ideas have been drying up. Um, that has a lot to do with this idea of a great stagnation. Tyler Cowen has written about this. Um, but talk about stagnation tends to focus on economic indices, right? And as I take it, you're interested in something a little broader or a little different. 
So would you talk about what you mean by big ideas and why focus on them rather than just the economics? Yeah, so I think the the, the core of this whole great stagnation debate, which is, which is what I call it, I mean, nobody, um, you know, nobody really sort of says, right, I am now engaging in the great stagnation debate, but it is definitely <laughs> a real thing. And there are lots of people from lots of different areas who for the past decade or, or maybe a little more have been thinking about this question of stagnation. And yes, I think it really did start with um, economic writers like Tyler Cowen, uh, you know, a few others. Um, it also started with technologists. So, you know, people like Peter Thiel. But actually, what, what I became really interested in was that in, in so many different little niches, people were talking about this same thing, the same idea of stagnation. And you would have the economists talking about it, you'd have the technologists talking about it. But then when you start burrowing down, you have anthropologists talking about it, you have philosophers talking about it. And so it seemed to me that yes, a lot of those questions about economics are really fundamental, but there was so much more at work. And, you know, a, a layer deeper in our society from, from even technology or, or economics is ideas. You know, it is the kind of common unit that underwrites everything to do with human activity. So to me, it was a more all-encompassing view. And, and my goal wasn't really to... Um, to, to kind of make anything up. It was to try and draw the dots between all of these different things that people were saying, but they weren't really bringing it together and saying, this is the absolute huge case for stagnation. Let's begin with engineering, maybe, in the 20th century. You mentioned something which I hadn't heard of before, before I read the book, which is this X10 graphite reactor. What was that? Um, well, that's, you know, pretty much the first uh, nuclear reactor. Um, and so... You know, th th this is a good nu nuclear power and um, nuclear technologies are such a great example of how things in the 20th century moved really fast. Because, you know, from when you have people first, um, you know, Rutherford first uncovering the structure of the atom, um, I think that was 1911, um, to then the first test of a nuclear weapon in 1945. You know, that's a very short space of time. Yeah, in, in the space of just a few decades, you go from this being really cutting-edge, obscure theory. There's only a handful of people in the whole world who can actually understand it. Um, it's, you know, it's really uh, a very kind of niche thing to suddenly the entire fate of humanity rests on you know what before was just a couple of people on a blackboard um and really that that was just a few years um and then you know it's providing a new power source very quickly after that first um atomic bomb test and so on so it is you know that that reactor is just a symbol of how fast things could translate from pure um frontier theory into very very impactful applications sure and we should clarify that this graphite reactor was early 40s yeah i mean and and you know it's part of the manhattan project yeah um yeah. obviously the the great um us uh well mainly us uh effort to build an atomic weapon mm -hmm. and i suppose just to fill in the gap there first nuclear power plant uh was Calder Hall, I think? Yeah, Calder Hall in England. Um, and then that's just a few years later. And then by the mid-1950s, you've got um, power stations just 
you know, around the world starting to bring power live to the grid. So, you know, it's it's really just an extraordinary journey um, of an idea. Um, and, and to me, you know, that the, probably um, the, the single most critical thing is just, just the speed at which, you know, the, the first idea of um, uh, the chain reaction, yeah. which was, I think it was 1933, um, you know, then to being a kind of proof of concept of how it might work by about the late 30s, and then to actually a, a working device, which is the, the Trinity test in summer of 1945. I mean, that it, it really is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then to then deliver nuclear power to the grid so soon after as well. Um, you know, that that is an impressive record. Um, and that that was the kind of that that set the benchmark, you know, and that that set this expectation. Um, you know, I also have spoken to a few physicists about this, and they think, well, you know, why is it that physics has got billions to build things like the Large Hadron, Large Hadron Collider? And that's because they almost even will admit. Um, politicians and and funders still have that hangover from the Manhattan Project, where an <laughs> obscure idea in particle physics can suddenly change the world. Another example, one that I I didn't really go into in the book, but I've I've become really much more aware of, is just, again, how quickly um, theoretical ideas in mathematics became a working computer um, in actually, again, a very, very short space of time. You know, like um, Alan Turing's seminal paper was published, I think, 35 or 36. Yeah, so um, that's published in in the mid-1930s. before that, you've got some work from Hilbert, I think, in the 1920s that, that had sort of laid the platform and created the problem that Turing was trying to solve. Um, I believe the Entscheidung's problem. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not not a mathematician, <laughs> but you know what 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 is still impressive is you know when those papers are being written, that that is truly frontier stuff, mm. and you know it is within then a decade that the first computer. Pretty, although the first computer came a bit after the war, about a decade, you've got yeah. a working computer. Two mm. decades later, you know, you, you're starting to get sort of production computers from IBM and stuff, mm. uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I'd be curious if you could maybe talk a bit more about like the landscape in which these like inventions and like big ideas are coming from. So you've kind of touched upon this like a little bit already where you've referred to, I guess, like this academic setting of like these theoretical ideas. And then maybe like with the Manhattan Project and and other things, you get like big government investment. You also have, you know, these like famous uh, maybe like private company labs, you know, Bell Labs or or the others um, as well. Like, can you talk a bit more maybe about, yeah, like the landscape here of um, in what context these inventions are taking place or almost what the production pipe plan here is. Yeah, and I think we've already mentioned that there's this nostalgia element to the whole argument that we're stagnating. And it's something I'm I'm quite alive to because I, I'm not actually very nostalgic. And I do actually think that most things were probably worse in the past. But I think there were certain features that helped here. I think one... Um, there were many, 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 many fewer researchers and fewer opportunities for people to do all this frontier research. You know, you're really talking about a handful of institutions in Germany, France, Britain, and the United States, probably, where where the most cutting-edge stuff was happening. But if you were lucky enough to be in one of those places, you you could probably just get in and then do what you wanted for a very long time. Mm, right. You know, so, somebody like Max Planck um, basically did 
took 20 years, published nothing, um, apparently was doing nothing, but actually, uh, in the end, was revolutionizing physics. And it, that kind of modus operandi would have been much more common and and available. Um, so, so that was a big help. So, I mean, secondly, and and more more darkly, really, obviously, both um, nuclear technologies and computational technologies were given a massive, massive boost by the Second World War, mm. and you know that put this kind of existential oomph behind them to put the funding in, to take the risks, to just try everything to make these things happen, to get lots of brilliant minds, both in the case of um, the Manhattan Project and Bletchley Park into a room together for months at a time, and literally the best people in the world, um, with nothing else to do but solve these really crazily hard problems. Um, And then, you know, whatever it took to make them happen, that was going to happen. Now, you know, nobody wants a war, obviously, but um, it did mean that things went from being these, these very loose, free academic ideas that existed in this very low pressure, very unmanaged environment to then being the full weight of society behind them. That that was a kind of almost unique set of circumstances in, in history. One thing I'm curious to un- ask about in particular is Bell Labs. Yeah, so that's another good example from this period. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I don't think, I'm not going to say it's just that period in the 20th century. I think there are other times in history where there've been these these great sort of moments for big ideas but but particularly from um like i would say perhaps the middle of the 19th century to towards the late 20th century was especially fertile mm-hmm. um and that was the era that bell labs was around as well and and you can pretty much take a major fundamental technology to do with the broad digital universe and chances are it was invented by bell labs which was the uh you know the r&d arm of the bell corporation what what is now effectively at&t but had the monopoly on um american telephones um for, for a very large period of time and you know bell labs just hired uh tons of phds tons of very, very crazy people in in many uh, instances. People like Claude Shannon, who invented uh, information theory, and and I think wrote one of the seminal papers on that just a few years after Turing, um, in in the late 1930s. And it gave them a almost ridiculous, unimaginable amount of freedom, given they were a very buttoned up business just to explore research directions that may or may not have an immediate application to the broad notion of communication. And out of that came all of these really fundamental ideas from information theory um, to the transistor, you know, the basic semiconductor building block of almost everything else to loads of programming languages, lasers, mobile phones, etc, etc. You know, it's it's basically been called the the kind of factory that built the 21st century, oh, sorry, the 20th century. and yeah, it, it, it wasn't alone either. It was a period in history when a lot of major companies, particularly in America, had uh, R&D arms that really were focused on foundational research. And they really were looking at things that were the kind of basic science. Mm-hmm. I suppose it might be worth putting in a word for Xerox Park as well, a kind of cousin of Bell Labs, more or less the research arm of a photocopier company, which, you know, invented a good fraction of what we now call personal computing 
In, indeed, um, a, a great example, and of course, yeah, you know the the graphical user interface. It was invented at Xerox Park, and they showed Steve Jobs around, and and he thought, yeah, I'll have that. <laughs> um, and I think they invented the mouse, and and you know loads of other things. But again, it was a very free research environment, um, and it, it was it was a very brilliant kind of place. Now. You know, there, there are still some amazing examples of, of um, research labs that do this kind of thing. Like, you know, one that I have personal experience of is DeepMind, the AI division of Alphabet. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways that really resembles a kind of Bell Labs for the 21st century. It has, you know, tons of PhDs doing really amazing work. They're given a vast amount of freedom to pursue an incredibly long-term goal. Um I guess there are, there are a couple of things to say, though. And firstly, although R&D spend across the board is up, it's it's much more focused on development. Like the, the amount of corporate spend mm. on fundamental research in aggregate and as a proportion of the economy is, is way down. And governments have had to step in, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily completely fill the gap. And there are problems when governments fund things. You know, when, when a business funding funds even basic notionally irrelevant research it is actually very good at then translating that into practical applications you know when government funds it it's still much harder the the transition is harder and you know secondly it, it's narrower you know it used to be that you'd have bell funding it but you'd also have people like dupont or kodak and all of these other companies now the last sector where people do this kind of research is tech so you know we've gone from this being a, a broad feature of big business as a whole to it being something that tech companies do. And it's just another example of how, you know, I think I think we're outsourcing our big thinking and our innovation just to a couple, you know, ha- let's say a handful of West Coast tech companies. And, you know, that's probably not great. That's not yeah, going to yeah. deliver big ideas across the spectrum. Yeah, like like one quick thought I have here is like, it's funny when you were mentioning, I guess, like Bell Labs and Park of like, yeah, nowadays, you know, if you think about AT&T and Xerox, right, you don't think about like cutting edge, like research or anything. And I guess the question here now is not about like how these like individual companies compare 50 years ago compared to now, but whether we have the equivalent of like a deep mind um, or whatever, if they're like enough to um, like substitute, I guess, for the research being done there. Um, and if there's just like enough of these like orgs or like um, like research arms now to to you know be able to keep up at the same pace that they were 50 years ago, is that like roughly right? With, I, I with think that's the, exactly it. Yeah. I, I would put it like this. Ultimately, I would say, you know, the the global economy now compared to the global economy, let's say the Bell Bell Labs heyday, late 1940s. That yeah. was when they invented the transistor, which you know, if if, if almost you, you had to just pinpoint one thing that they delivered, well transistors then enabled so much i mean otherwise you know our computers would have vacuum tubes without the transistor yeah. and you know that would have been very limited so you know the the global economy now i don't know the exact numbers of how many times bigger the global economy is but it is many 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 times bigger than the late 1940s but we don't have many 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 bell labs actually we there's probably the same number of really cutting edge corporate research labs now you know you've got something like deepmind um you've got something you know a few of the other tech companies have have really interesting really kind of frontier labs but other than that you don't really see it. Like, for example, 
you might expect that the pharmaceutical companies would have something like a Bell Labs for pharma, but they don't. They just tend to kind of leave that to startups. They leave it to government-funded research. But, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is, is way, way bigger than it was. It barely existed uh, in the late 1940s. So I, what, what I think we haven't seen is the kind of growth in these kind of organizations that you would have naturally expected. Super. So you've talked a bit about the pace of progress in the 20th century when we talk about scientific discoveries and also engineering and research. Um, I wonder if we could zoom out and also just talk about something like how culture and politics changed in the 20th century. Rather than asking something vague, maybe it's worth asking about um, what you talk about in the book, which is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Why was this such a big deal? And actually, how did it come about as well? Yeah, so I, I'm very much saying that this is a cultural, a political, a intellectual phenomenon, as well as technology, science, um, business. And, and you know, really, I think that was one of the, the important things in the book, because I think, you know, there are people who've, who've made all those, those cases, but they haven't then connected it to these other ideas of, of cultural stagnation or intellectual stagnation. Um, so I, I take the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as as an example of a big idea that was, in, in my language, given purchase. So I'll just say that I, I think all ideas go through three phases. Yeah. They're, they have, they're conceived, a conception of the idea is when it initially is, is thought up. And by the way, I don't think ideas just come fully formed. I think ideas are combinations of other ideas. So they're really interesting, important combinations. So, you know, the conception of the idea, you create a new interesting combination. Then you need to execute it. You need to write the paper. You need to build the prototype just to get something that, that is going to give that form. And then lastly, it needs to get purchased. That's when it's rolled out or when it's widely accepted and so on. And until it's gone through all those three levels, I think you haven't sort of achieved a, an idea or a big idea. It, it's, it's, you know, it, it's stuck. If you've only, if you only, if it doesn't get purchase, then most people don't know about it. It's not really impacting the world. It's not qualifying as a big idea. So, Universal Declaration of Human Rights is really interesting because it was when this idea of innate universal human rights that had existed in some form or another, you know, roughly since the Enlightenment, some people would say, you know, way before that and various precedents. But, you know, let's say it's an Enlightenment idea just for the sake of argument. Um, you know, so let's say it's had sort of 250 years um, actually, what happened after the Second World War is that um, the newly formed UN created a committee. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, the wife of the, the former president, um, chaired the committee. And they thrashed out this pretty remarkable document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is an incredible synthesis of different cultural, philosophical, even religious tra traditions, legal traditions from around the world. Um, they argued it out. Um, they took this abstract old idea, um, put it into a very concrete form, and then somehow managed to get this through the UN and get it formally adopted as a declaration. Now, you know, consider that a few years before that happened, it happened in 1947, you know, the world was one of concentration camps, of, you know, massive battlefields. It's, it's remarkable that such an ambitious intellectual idea could go from 
the, the musings of some philosophers and, and dreamers and political activists to being something that had been, you know, on one level, effectively adopted by the human race. Um, you know, so that that's a great example of how an idea can translate very quickly, or at least did. But broadly, I mean, just, just to go on, I, yeah, I, sure. uh, you know, I think it illustrates a bit more that I... I I, th I think in the 20th century, there was constant revolutions of culture, of aesthetics, of ideology, um, all of which have begun to burn themselves out in, in a very real way. And, you know, um, a an example here is the old Francis Fukuyama argument about the end of history. Um, you know, one of the most misunderstood arguments anyone's ever really made. Underrated. And, um, you know, and yeah, and I'm, I'm not a sort of massive... Francis Fukuyama fan, but I I do think he had a point when he said, you know, basically what he's saying is people are no longer uh, inventing new ideologies and then trying to kind of make these a reality. What people are effectively doing is either just managing an authoritarian regime or managing a somewhat declining liberal democracy, and and that those are basically your options, and that's that's pretty much how it has played out. So we've, we've talked, I guess, just now about, I guess, like society and cultures and stuff. And we've talked before about technologies. And I guess a big part of your book is like making this like interdisciplinary case that this is like such a cross cutting uh, like phenomenon or like trend or something we keep um, see occurring throughout. Like, what is it that links these things? Like before we talk, you know, very specific, you know, cases to do with engineering around like funding around universities and the like. And I'm yeah curious about like how much of this then can like generalize to society and culture. Like, what do you think is the, the common thread here between these, these things? The common thread is this idea of ideas, right? Mm. So I think the, that, that's what really needs to prompt the question is that, the fact that all of these disparate areas um, appear to display a somewhat similar pattern, even though they're in very different areas, I guess that that then does become the question. You know, is there a single cause? And I don't think there is a single cause. I think there are a series of interlinked causes. Right. And also, I think it's really important to say, I don't think this this idea of stagnation is like a universal sort of rule. There are like important areas where there isn't stagnation. For example, of course, the internet, digital technology has over the last 40 years been a, a major area of boom, of new ideas, of new technologies and so on. So, you know, it's not like it's a very simple case. I think what it more is the case and what it what is is a common unit for all of these is that if you want to do something radically original, radically new and and hugely impactful, it has become much harder than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. So that's I think that the common problem that they all face is that the, all these ideas are becoming harder to conceive of and to then roll out and get purchased. Yeah. And exactly I guess like why it's become harder can differ. But that that's the question is why why is this pattern so common? And I think it's because some of some of the reasons can differ. There but there are lots of different reasons that are common to different areas. So I think there is a there's a set of problems that are out there that are impacting on all of these different things. So, you know, some of the issues that mean you know, you can't just invent a musical genre in the same way are the same things that will stop you inventing a new branch of science in, in the same way. 
Um, so, you know, there might be these, these structural features in the nature of knowledge and human endeavor that they share, or there might be also these societal f features. Like, you know, I, and I'm sure we, we can come on to it. I, I think society is way more risk averse than it, it used to be. And it's risk averse in terms of what science it likes to fund and it's risk averse in what kind of music it wants to fund. Yeah, I guess one picture I have in mind when you're talking about this is thinking of ideas as little gems or something underground and the process of coming up with ideas is like the process of mining. And, you know, one I love common that. cause of yeah. finding ideas is something like, well, they get harder to find because you've got to dig down deeper, it's more expensive. They kind of, you pick out all the obvious big gems. But uh, another explanation might be, um, I don't know, someone just puts up a sign and just bans us from mining because they think it's too dangerous and the gems are still there. Those are two different causes. That, that is a really good um, sort of metaphor for this. And, and it, it echoes strongly um, one that's, that's used by a few economists. There's an economist called Charles I. Jones who's written a lot about these questions and who has established, you know, just a whole bunch of remarkable um, arguments that support this thesis. So, so for example, I mean, he he's shown how much of U.S. growth over the last sixty years comes from work that was done in the Second World War. Just just to go back to what we were talking about. So, you know, he really has quantified just how much of the growth goes back to that period, and it is a frighteningly large amount. So, you know, if you take away the work that was done in that very small window then, you know, the, the entire US economy and by extension, the global economy just looks completely different, just if you take out those sort of years. But anyway, so Charles I. Jones talks about um, finding fish in a lake. And, you know, there might be an awful lot, but after a time, you've landed the really easy fish. And, you know, then other people have sort of extended it and it's, well, the fish are just getting a lot harder to catch. So does that mean there are no fish left? No. But what it means is, is you need better fishing rods. You need better uh, information about where they are. And if you absent that, you will catch fewer mm. fish. Yeah. It, it's basically called the low-hanging fruit argument. Right. And yeah, it yeah. is, it's, con fish. it's, con yeah, the low-hanging fish <laughs> argument. It's, and this is controversial. A lot of people really hate this. They say, that's absolute nonsense. And I think they immediately say, well, you know, um, Einstein and relativity, you know, that wasn't a low-hanging fruit before he thought it up. Um, or, or something like that. But I, I think at some level, it has to be true that as time goes on, relatively easier ideas are achieved first. So you would naturally expect things to get harder. I see. And that's going to, sorry, that's going to cut across um, in every field of endeavor. Although it's worth mentioning, just very briefly, you know, maybe often the fish are going to run out, but occasionally someone will put up a no fishing sign. And that's a different explanation. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is happening as well and compounding it. Just to flesh this maybe out um, a bit as well, because you mentioned Charles I. Jones here, who I think together with um, like Nicholas Bloom wrote, and a few others wrote this like famous Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find paper. You can also still see the same amount of like tech progress and stuff, but it can just like require a lot more inputs when it comes to this thing. So I think here the famous example they gave was like Moore's Law, which as you mentioned with like tech still seems to be one of these like big areas that is still like really thriving and, you know, still doubling and stuff. But the amount of inputs it requires, I think they now mention is like 18 times higher than what what you used to have in terms of like money or number of researchers and stuff to still make the same amount of like progress still you know is happening but requires more inputs and that can be a way in which stagnation is almost like masked in a way right where things are getting harder to find but still making the same progress we're just now having to put a lot more input into it exactly i mean that that is exactly it and and 
this this paper is is a really brilliant paper. Yeah, so it, it's Charles Jones, Nick Bloom, John Van Rien, and, and Michael Webb. Um, and I, I was already quite far into the research for this book when the, the paper came along, and then it came along, and I was like, yes, <laughs> this this just uh, is is a really great concrete, uh, fully worked out example of what is going on, and and it is as you say, Moore's law. Um, continues, you know, this extraordinary pace of um, progress. But it just costs more and more and more. It requires more and more and more researchers to maintain the same level of progress. Um, and that's not just true in um, computers. They, they they measure this across loads of different fields of R&D, from sort of the amount of, uh, you know, crop yields in R&D to medical R&D. And yeah, it's it's Research productivity is constantly going down. Um, it constantly requires more and more and pe- more and more people just to keep the same level of progress, and that very strongly indicates that um, ideas are getting harder. But I guess also, I mean, this is like I guess like going on from this point even more so, but like also just I guess the type of like research or like what research now looks like looks very different, right? From I guess like 50s or even before that when you were talking about like Max Planck and stuff too, right? Where now research teams or, you know, in science are just like much bigger and you have like 20 co-authors and what have you or like research, you know, in climate change is incredibly interdisciplinary. So in order to make advancements on climate change, it's not just like one field that needs to make progress. It's a bunch of fields that need to come together uh, to make progress and help and communicate and the like. Like it just seems like much more complicated. Yeah, and uh, this this is all all kinds of evidence for for the stagnation thesis. Yeah, is that um, authorship of uh, scientific papers is massively going up. Mm-hmm. Kind of mega authorship of papers where you have over a hundred or even over thousands of of co authors is way 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 up. Um, the same is true on patents. Um, yeah, the the nature of kind of coordinating interdisciplinary teams makes things really difficult. There are all kinds of problems about getting funding for interdisciplinary work. Um, yeah, it, it all builds this picture of a much more tricky research environment. And, and remember, of course, when we're talking about research getting harder, research requiring more people, all of those people have way more tools than anyone alive in the 1930s. You know, they, they can put together simulations on their computer, on their mobile phone that would have been Un- unthinkable to previous generations. So you mentioned patents there. Can you say something about what we see when we look at new ideas in patents over time? Yeah, you know, the, the patent record has become a, a gold mine for uh, uh, trying to understand the history of technology. And so th- there are loads of different things that you can see when you study the patent record. Mm-hmm. Um by the way, actually, some of the, the interesting statistical work on how you might define a big idea comes from work on patents. So, you know, you can very clearly see what are the most influential patents in history, what are the most influential scientific papers in, in history by their citation records. And that gives you a sort of statistical foundation for, the, for thinking about what might constitute a big idea, which I think is a, a necessary but not sufficient part of the, the definition. Um but when you look at the um, patent record, people have found a lot of surprising things. So patents are not getting more influential over time. You know, they're, they're pretty stable. A lot of the most influential patents are actually very old, which you might expect, but there's no evidence of an increase in um, the most influential patents. I, I think one of the most important things that that has been found is 
if you want to capture a big idea, you're not just looking at a patent, you're looking at a class of patents. Mm. And so big ideas create new classes of patents. And you are not seeing any increase in the rate of patent classes um, being introduced at all. Mm. So that suggests that the the number of actual game-changing innovations is really stable because whenever they find something that does that, they have to create a new class. And if anything, it might be slightly slowing down over time. I see. One more trend that might be worth mentioning is a trend in the age of scientific researchers and especially lead authors on papers. What do we see there? Well, we see it's going up. And we we just see everywhere in almost every field um, that in order to be the person who is capable of delivering the most frontier ideas, you're getting older. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you study, um, uh, you know, who who's getting the grants. They are getting older and older over time. And, you know, th- there is um, uh, some, some great work that's been done on this that, that basically says, well, Yes, maybe, but that might not matter. And so, you know, I think it's not. It's definitely the case that um, grant grant recipients are getting older in in a lot, a lot of fields. Um, people do say, well, underneath the surface, there's a lot going on. You know, those people might just be getting their grant and then handing it out to others, and so on. Various other other sort of issues with it that that you can take, possibly managing teams and, and the like. They're managing teams and so on, but I mean, it, which in itself is an example yeah, of yeah. how how science and research has changed and become this this much more, um, yeah, much much bigger enterprise in almost every area. But you know, I I can't help but feel that you know there is just this historical track record of young people coming into a discipline and being the ones to upend it. That, you know, in most areas, um, the younger you are, the the less sort of accumulated capital you have in your area and the less you're going to fight to protect what you've already achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I do think that there must be some impact to this. It's not necessarily a healthy sign that their people have been getting so much older. I think, you know, and there are a lot of reasons for it, some of which are about a sort of new conservatism, but a lot of it is just about the structure of academia and research. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is about, and we can talk about it more, is about this burden of knowledge effect. You know, it effectively takes people sort of almost 15 years of of work to get to a point where they can turn up at a, a grant-making organization and say, give me a grant. Mm-hmm. You know, um, again, people in in the past, in the 1930s, they weren't worrying about doing three postdoc positions and then like biting tooth and nail to get a lectureship, which you're probably not going to get. You know, you do your PhD and then that was probably that. Now you do your PhD and you're barely even begun the journey. So, yeah, I suppose in some fields, um, that's actually necessary. It's not like we have all these kind of self-imposed hurdles, but if you're wanting to make progress at the frontier of some highly specialized subfield in physics, then you really need to put in the time to no, exactly. That, it's that it's necessary. There's there's simply so much to know and to master and so much that needs to be done. You know, that that, that it requires a lot more. So, you know, um the the analogy here is, you know, you have to get to the frontier. But the more people research, the further away the frontier gets. So you, it just takes you longer to travel there. 
and moreover, the further away it gets, it's it's almost like you are only going to work on a narrower, narrower slice of it. Um, and again, that that really works against big ideas. And this is something that I I almost think is just so fundamental: is that the more the world requires, or the more ideas require massive specialization, the less possible it is to have these like grand ideas, mm-hmm. um, because you have just been funneled down to this this tiny place because. You know, that's just where the, the nature of knowledge, the structure of where it's got to has has necessitated that. But at the same time, it means, yeah, if you just want to have some kind of huge field-changing idea like natural selection, well, no, because you're just studying this one tiny molecule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One kind of fun philosophical question I wanted to ask here is if you look at the trend of theoretical physics... In the early 20th century, a patent clerk without much formal training could revolutionize physics, right? And nowadays, the amount of capital expenditure and the size of the team required just to make some incremental breakthrough at the frontier is so many orders of magnitude bigger than a century ago. Um, Here's two things that I could suggest. One is we've more or less figured it out. We know we need to iron out some details because we know that, you know, the current picture can't be quite right. Um, But it stands to reason that it's so expensive to fill in the last gaps because there's so few of them. Another story is we're actually not there at all. In fact, maybe um, the distance we can still cover in our understanding of theoretical physics is very large. um, And we've just reached a kind of a barrier much earlier than than we um, might eventually reach. This is... As far as I can tell, something along the lines of what David Deutsch is trying to say when he says that progress is, in some sense, in some important sense, boundless. I'm wondering what where you come down on that and what you what you do with David Deutsch's ideas. Yeah, so I think effectively you're you're, you're saying there might be two mechanisms at work in physics for for why big ideas might slow, and one is just that we we've done most of it and we're we're kind of hitting the edges. It's a saturated field. The other just that it is effectively an, an infinite space, but just we've hit roadblocks in our journey into it. Correct. And David Deutsch, um, yeah, you know, who who I just think is such an interesting thinker and, you know, uh, you know, he, he's a bit punchy and controversial, but I, I love reading his stuff. Um, I don't know, but I think both are really plausible. Um, I almost think a, a bit of both in that, Let's look at first the, the the kind of limits argument, you know. Like we do know that in certain areas there are hard limits and we know that in some cases um, we may even be getting close to them. Um, for example, there are just obvious hard limitations to the human brain. You know, there are things that, you know... I think David Deutsch does disagree with this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and he, he sort of sees the human brain as as a kind of archetypal, just general intelligence. Whereas yeah. there are a lot of other people who just think of the human brain as just a very sort of flawed device that has just obvious inbuilt limitations in what it can do. Um, I would definitely come down more on that side, to be honest. So, I'm curious. So I think I don't come down on that side. Right. I'm curious to know what you think those limitations are. Um. Well... I, well, 
loads of of them to be honest <laughs> um you know for for a start um just perceptually um we we don't have very good senses you know there there are huge kind of universes of input that we don't have we have you know very weak working memories um we think that we have this kind of generalizable intelligence because we can do maths, but you know we really have no experience of anything else than what it is to be a human being. And I just think it's colossally arrogant to believe that just this sort of randomly evolved um, survival mechanism is capable of understanding any and everything that may exist, even sort of in potential. Like, yes, it's very powerful, but the limits to what it can do just seem obvious to me. I mean, you know, the amount of calculations we can perform is, you know, is low. Like, you know, there there are things that we, we can't directly understand. We can't directly imagine um, let's say, you know, the a, a multidimensional multiverse kind of thing David Deutsch is looking at. E- even he is kind of using mathematical proxies to in, pic- in picture and depict what that is. Yeah, I'm, worrying, I'm wary of falling down this rabbit hole. <laughs> so on the perceptual point, we build tools to perceive things we can't perceive with our eyeballs and our ears, right? Um, on the memory point, well, we augment our memory with storage devices like we've been doing. On the imagination point, it's not clear that we need to be able to picture in our mind's eye um, scientific concepts like a multidimensional space. Um, and on the kind of intelligence point, I like the analogy to uh, the idea of a uh, computer, the formal idea, where, you know, my phone, the laptop in front of me uh, is limited. It has limited memory and it has limited um, speed. But in an important sense, um, it can do exactly everything that any other computer can do because... Um, it's Turing complete, right? And I suspect our minds are like that as well. Um, and so the challenge is to um, describe some task that some other minds could do that um, a more rudimentary mind couldn't do in the limit of time. Well, and that's the challenge for me, which here, I don't really understand. Here, here, of course, there's a paradox because potentially we can't even think of the things that we can't even think of. Mm. So, you know, that's that's the, the kind of yeah, paradox. You know, like there might be loads of stuff that exists out there, but our minds aren't even built to be able to imagine it. We, we don't know. And I, I, do, I completely agree on the point about, you know, prostheses. And, um, you know, yes. And, and that's where I'm excited for the future because I think we are building the tools that can enable us to do so much. Um, but, you know, just just again, sort of push push back because it is a fascinating point because if, if, if we are reaching the limits of what... what the human brain can do it is part of the explanation you know i think one thing that um is is becoming clear um both from a lot of research in in neuroscience and in you know now now in the limitations of ai is just how much of our intelligence is embodied is connected to emotions and the limbic system and so on and the more that we know about intelligence human intelligence the more apparent it is that so much of it is about lived bodily existence and experience and emotion. And even um, there's a great interesting theory that that effectively what consciousness is, is intelligence plus emotion. And that it is the emotional element is, is the key ingredient of this idea of consciousness. And so the more you see all of that, the more you think, well, yeah, you know, we're, we're not just these sort of like 
gen totally generalizable things it's so specific i don't know and i'm i'm not like i don't hold this opinion at all very, very yeah. strongly at all i i sort of just proffer it as an example yeah. um and yeah it, it, it's really it's i'd be i'd be very you know if david deutsch were here he'd no doubt just shoot me down <laughs> so hard <laughs> like that i'd just say yes i'll briefly pick up on one thing you say which i found very interesting which is this point that if we can imagine what we can't do, if we can describe the things, the limits of our minds or yeah. our intelligence or whatever, then they wouldn't be limits because we could figure out how to break past them. You know, if we can imagine something we can't yet imagine, then we're already imagining it. So yeah. you're faced with a kind of choice between the Deutsch line where you have to say that um, anything that's possible to know or do, um, we are capable of doing it or knowing it, or this kind of mysterious line where there are just kind of unknown unknowns which will forever remain in that bucket. But the middle ground is actually really unstable as far as I can tell. Yeah. I think two, two things are simultaneously true. One is that we have this unbelievably complete description of the universe. And two, that there might also be unfathomable further depths to solve. Um, and both of those things are true. Because if, if you think about like how much of an explanation we have for for almost everything it's it's ab it's absolutely unreal you know people can take us to to the the fractions of a second after the big bang in a a lot of detail it just is the case that there is a lot of knowledge but it is also the case that there might be just vast areas as well and i sort of think that might be true and there are just roadblocks so but i think a bit of both like in just some areas there already is so much there you know, you're not likely to revolutionize geology by finding a kind of fossil that has no consistency with anything that, that is going on, like in the way that when it was a field that first came about. So, yeah, in that sense, I do agree with David Deutsch. What, one interesting thing that I want to like pull out here just from, from listening to you, uh, both of you, is that like, yeah, it's really interesting to like reflect on just like on a meta point, right? By what we mean by like collected like intelligence and so, right? On the one hand, Finn was talking about how we can like augment our intelligence or how we should like really view ourselves in connection with like certain technologies, such as like having access to the internet or to phones or to storage or like what kind of have you. And then I think something that you just echoed here, but we also talked about previously that it's not just about a single human, right? It's about like how humans work together and like specialize and share knowledge that way. I think it is just like really interesting, right? To like just take this like, I guess like bigger perspective and like view on how the whole like knowledge ecosystem kind of works together yeah and i mean again th that's another thing that makes me optimistic so i i don't want to jump the gun too much but i think that the two things that make me optimistic for the future are one new tools and something like ai you know really in the vanguard of that 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 can short circuit various problems that we have and and two is just the fact that yeah we, we're in this situation where ideas now require a a really high level of collective intelligence mm -hmm. but you know that that happens to be at a time when we have a very large global population uh it's better educated better resourced than ever before we have a whole bunch of nations effectively capable of delivering work at the frontier that's never really been true before it's always been really hyper concentrated in just a few areas so you know, from that perspective, um, yeah, the, it, it, it is now a collective endeavor. You always need to find the most effective mechanisms for doing so. And there are so many kind of experiments that need to be done, but they're more likely to happen now. Um, 
the, the world is more capable, on paper at least, of delivering that sort of collective intelligence than ever. Yeah, maybe we could um, return to talking about progress in energy and engineering and science. You talked about nuclear energy around the middle of the 20th century. Um, maybe we could update on what's going on now. So um, one concept you mentioned in the book is the Adams curve. What's the idea there? Um, so the Adams curve, uh, what was uh, a curve um, that was was posited as effectively uh, a rising curve of energy available um, to, you know, per capita, essentially. Um, and, you know, for a long time, that was really going up. And over the period of, um, you know, the, the kind of pivotal period when economic growth took off, when, um, you know, a, a large volume of technologies were rolled out across the world, um, that curve went up and up and up. And then basically it stopped um, just around the point that things like productivity growth also right. started to... 1970 or so. Yeah, around, you know, from, from the 1970s on. Um, and so, you know, that that is something that leads, you know, some people to draw a correlation between the fact that we, we haven't really um, been delivering massive boosts in energy like we used to, and that, that has all kinds of you know, knock-on effects, you know, energy is work, the amount of work that is is effectively available to any given person is flat, so various other things are flat. Yeah, um, it's, yeah. it's really interesting when you just look at the, the graph, you see this fairly steady exponential curve in terms of total energy and energy per person over time. And then, like you said, around the 1970s, it kind of flattens. There's this line in the book, I liked you mentioned, um, so if pre-1970 energy use trends had continued, this is the Adams curve trend, um, we'd have access to 30 times as much energy today, likely supplied by novel forms of nuclear power. So there is a link to nuclear here. What, what, how does the nuclear story play out beyond the kind of 50s and 60s? Well, so there would have been um, two, two ways of delivering that. And again, it's something that people have looked into, and it, it, it would be plausible. You'd, you'd effectively need two things if you're going to deliver that through nuclear power. One is you'd need to have delivered nuclear fusion energy, um, so not fission energy as, as it is, but you know the, the mechanism of the stars here on Earth, um, uh, you know, the fusion of of uh, atoms into you know heavier forms um and then miniaturization of existing fission technologies you know not just to sort of small reactors but like pocket sized things that you could put in a car mm-hmm. and uh it would go um, um th- there are no sort of fundamental scientific objections to either of those things but they are phenomenal engineering challenges just as building the first nuclear power plant was building the first atomic weapons were you know absurdly difficult engineering challenges but whereas those were solved we never really cracked fusion it's always been 30 years away famously um it's been an just an epic quest since the 1950s and again miniaturization just never happened and and people just never put the time the research money in that were requisite for such massive challenges so you know that that explains where you know you, you can't have an exponential curve of fossil fuels because you know they are finite and you'd pretty quickly have run out and also burned up the whole planet um so you would need those are the only ways you you keep the adams curve going 
Um, but nobody, the challenges were much greater than anyone thought. And the sort of commensurate effort required just wasn't matching it. Yeah. Just a quick kind of like throwback to like a previous interview we did um, kind of on like fossil fuels. There's like this interesting um, result that when we're talking to, to Matt Ives, who's like an energy researcher here in Oxford, uh, had is that when you look at like the actual like cost price of like fossil fuels throughout centuries, they've been like surprisingly stable. And like one of his like hypotheses or one of the, the ideas like there is that um, we've had like advancements in technology that has like made these technologies cheaper. But at the same time, literally like to go to like Finn's like mining metaphor, they are just becoming harder to, to find yeah. these things like almost cancel out, right. which then makes it appear that like the, the price of fossil fuel is like roughly stable. Yeah, yeah it's like a funny, like, yeah, somewhat oh, tangent, but like yeah. when you think of yeah. it. Yeah. I was surprised to hear you mention then that in order to have caught up with the Adams curve, that is in order to be kind of 30x what we are now, we would have required fusion. seems to me that if fusion wasn't a thing, fission might even just be enough. There's like loads of fissile material lying around. These small reactors you mentioned seem really promising. Um, yeah, it, it, it could just work on fission. I mean, I, I say fusion because it's, it's a great example of how, yeah. you know, having solved... Having solved, not you know, or, or having made incredible progress on you know control of, of fission and and that being a huge part of uh, you know the technological toolkit of humanity, pe- people thought that that kind of progress would be maintained on fusion and it wasn't. So it, it's just a great example of how what seemed like it would be a really deliverable idea then wasn't. And I guess also like fusion maybe fits this like big idea. Um, kind of like, you know, metaphor, like I think a bit better yeah. where it seems more like a breakthrough technology than like right. solar power, which, you know, has seen like pretty steadily drastic yeah. decreases, but I guess now is like much more incremental and like tinkering to keep getting costs down Ex- exactly. rather than a big breakthrough to has, just get this technology working. Yeah, and and the day there is a, a fusion reactor that, you know, has a kind of positive output will, will be a massive breakthrough moment. Mm-hmm. There are other reasons why I think it's important to say, you know, fusion it would, would have to be part of that mix. And obviously it it's... It's safer than fission, and it has fewer waste products. So, you know, it's it is all all round a kind of cleaner, more palatable thing if it can be done. Yeah, and you know, I think I, you know, want to say as well, you know, I'm I'm not a sort of like stagnation fetishist because actually, <laughs> on on both miniaturization and totally. on on fusion, there's there's incredible progress just even in the past few years, and there's suddenly, you know, after decades when fusion has just been funded by a few governments like you know yeah u.s government has put quite a bit in but the russians did british government french government it's it's suddenly now vc money is piling into fusion there are all of these really interesting startups there are still the kind of big international collaborations like ITER. Mm-hmm. so you know actually um for the first time in decades on, on both of those scores perhaps things are changing which i think is is a really important part of the book. We've had this period of stagnation, but I do think it's plausible that we're in a a further pivot point where we might be seeing a re-acceleration like right now. In some sense, fusion is a really great illustration of both stagnation since around the 70s and some glimmer of hope for the next 30 years or so. Um, You mentioned ITER. That seems like an example to me of how things go badly, like cost overruns, as far as I can remember, on the order of 
30 billion yeah, euros. Can or you something? maybe explain what, what ITA was or give context there for, for listeners, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, it's being built in Toulouse, um, or just outside Toulouse. It's about 12 countries are funding it, including, yeah, the, the ones I mentioned, but uh, Japan, Korea, mm. China, Germany. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's a multi-billion, multi-decade project. I mean, I think it's it's pretty much the biggest building site in France. Um, but it's it's very unwieldy. It's it's dogged by political fights. So even before before anything happened, Japan and France were in this massive battle over who would host it. So you know the the international politics of it are extreme. It it suffers from all of the problems of big science, the bureaucracy, just the sort of group hurdles the fact everything has to be signed off by 12 different countries etc etc so what it has is the benefit of a huge budget which i think is super important but there are all kinds of issues with it yeah so just briefly you mentioned two facts about r&d spending in the u.s in the book which really took me by surprise first is apparently that since 53 the u.s government has spent about 500 million dollars per year in today's money on fusion and i think you mentioned a b2 bomber costs more than that and also secondly r&d on energy in total um is about 27 billion a year which sounds like a lot but it's um at least according to you less than the u.s spends on pet food so both these numbers just seem much lower than they could be they're yeah they're, they're such good examples because um, you know, yeah, that uh, energy R&D total, that, that will include all of the kind of R&D from the oil majors. And what their R&D is, is kind of looking for a new pot of oil somewhere in the ground that they can dig up. So, you know, like that that includes all of the, the money that is being spent on, you know, developing things like wind turbines and photovoltaics whatever you want yeah it's tiny it's a big number on on the face of it but in terms of like global gdp given this is pretty much the most foundational stuff of all and and given that we are in a, a climate emergency it's it's crazily yeah. low yeah th there's like two angles here like one is you know we need new energy just to like decarbonize and like stop climate change and this is like a whole separate conversation which is like really interesting and we've done episodes on i'm sure we'll like dig into more but there's this like other really interesting like kind of like meta like question about like what is energy like is energy you know just to like enable us to do things that we wanted to do or would like energy just be like a supply kind of like shock thing that could like enable awesome things. Like for example, if, you know, humanity tomorrow just had like 10 times as much like quote unquote like energy just available, like how would that change things? So, um, rather than like, you know, we work out what we want to do first and then we find energy mm, together. Mm, like what if we just had right. an insane here's, amount here's of Here's a really concrete example. And it's from a guy called uh, Jay Stores Hall, who's written a book, um, Where's My Flying Car? And it, it's really about this, this question. And and he's he's my sort of source on things like the Adams curve, um, and basically he says, for example, you know, so so that goes back to this quote, you know, we were promised f flying cars, but we got 140 characters, and that that is you know just the argument that basically innovation stopped everywhere outside digital. We were promised this really great future, and and it basically just got funneled down to things like Twitter and ordering a pizza from your phone. Um, and he says, you know, so flying cars, that's what everyone always says. That's the great disappointment. Where did they go? And he's like, actually, everything about a flying car is really feasible right now. It's really easy. It's really doable. It could be really quiet. It can be really safe. It can just take off. Da, 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 da. 
the problem is energy. The problem is that to do it all really feasibly and easily just requires vast amount of energy. And effectively, it, it sort of requires basically a mini nuclear power plant inside it. But if if you had 30 times more energy, everything like a flying car would, would just be trivial. Yeah. You could just do it. So it is. this is the positive case for all of this research is that um, we, we aren't able to do a lot, the more you think about it, if, if we just had unlimited energy on tap, the more everything would be cheaper, easier, more yeah. possible. I, I feel like it's worth mentioning, more energy doesn't just mean more room for you know rich people to buy expensive toys. It means raising the standard of living of literally every single of person. Of every around. human, yeah. And and again, that, that's another point, is you know, right now, um, yeah, the, the, the amount of energy somebody in the States uses is obviously a vast amount more than the average person in India. Yeah. Um, and, you know, perhaps that can come from renewables, but it's just like, well, if, if everyone in India had the available clean energy of someone in America, then you would expect India to be introducing all kinds of stuff like yeah. America has over yeah, the course yeah. of the well, 20th century. This also gets, I guess, what we've like touched upon like a bunch throughout the conversation about like, what do we mean by like frontier growth, right? And it's worth like maybe distinguishing like frontier like tech development to like catch up tech development, mm. right? Where like frontier is like, I guess like just stereotyping here what we're thinking of with like Bell Labs or like other like deep mind, you know, yeah. Western kind of like labs and stuff but and then you know we can kind of characterize a bunch of like other growth as just like catching up to that level but really it's about just getting as we said before we just need as many scientists or possibly as many inputs as, as possible to be at the frontier and that requires a whole bunch of like catch up to begin with yeah um, and like, helping other like regions develop yeah. and stuff that pattern with energy like it's true to say that that we can see both um the, the positive side and negative side and another example of that would be in in space travel um where you know, we had a great burst of it in the middle part of the 20th century, then effectively nothing for many, many years. But now we're starting to see some some really interesting green shoots. It's the exact same pattern in, in with fusion. So a period of optimism, progress, followed by stagnation. But now, as as we speak, there's the signs that things might be changing. Can, can I just quickly ask one clarifying question? Um, when we talked before about like the, the Adams curve and stuff, and you mentioned that you know we should be having energy you know 30 times as much as, as, as um, we're seeing now if we'd been growing at these previous rates, like what region are we talking about here? Is this like you know for the US? Is this for like the global north? Because you know at the same time, I guess like since the, the 70s or what have you know, like China and one billion people have kind of been lifted out of like poverty. No, I believe and, like, that is for the well. global north. It's for the so global. He's, okay. he's, he's sort of talking the most energy intensive um, parts of the global economy. So, you know, he, he's talking 30 times um, US per capita energy consumption. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, but obviously that should then feed through. I mean, you know, if, if, if somebody does invent a, a sort of working fusion reactor, then you know I, I would imagine that will proliferate pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah I mean, this yeah. is the trend you often see with new technologies: is that they start in rich countries and then they become uh, more widely available. And you know, just to go back to this point about energy, that maybe initially, if we're talking about cutting edge reactors in the rich north, they might first benefit um, people who already use a lot of energy. Um, but broadly speaking, if you want to do a thing. You need energy to do it. And it turns out most people in the world want to do things. So yeah. it's going to be useful for, again, pretty much um, everyone in the world. I suppose another comment, just to just to kind of ramble for a bit, um, there was this part in the book you mentioned, Where Is My Flying Car, where Jay Stortall is talking about the energy usage per capita 
uh, nowadays in you know a place like the UK or the US. Um, I think it's worth just bearing in mind how gratuitously high that would have seemed to someone, for instance, living 200 years ago. It just would have seemed, you know, grotesque, unnecessary. What do I do with like 100x the amount of energy that I'm currently using? But nowadays, it doesn't feel like we're using a grotesque amount of energy. Maybe some people think we're using like two times as much energy, but certainly not a thousand. Um, so we find things to do with it. And those things are like genuinely very valuable in that book. And it's excellent. Where is my flying car? One of the figures that stood out is this uh, graph. So on the X, as far as I can remember, is, is the proportion of predictions that came true from predictions about future technologies um, some number of decades ago. And on the Y is the amount of energy they would have required. Maybe it's the other way around, but it doesn't matter. And where the predictions concern technologies that, wouldn't, that don't use much energy, such as digital technologies, when we're just talking about you know, phones and computers, um, many of them came true. When the predictions concern things that use a lot of energy or produce a lot of energy, like um, new kinds of reactors, like flying cars, anything that's really kind of made out of atoms rather than bits, yeah. uh, they don't come true. And so the top right of this, the kind of the top right quadrant of that graph is just totally empty. It's like so clear. I would be cautious of sort of overdoing. I think it's a factor, but one of I think the the whole stagnation question. It's just so overdetermined. Mm. It's just so many reasons working all at once. You know, it's partly that. It's partly that we don't have enough energy. But, you know, is energy the major blocker in, say, pharmaceuticals? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. You know, I think there are there are whole different ones there. So, you know, that that I think is partly about attitudes. It's partly about investment. Um, you know, just just on say to give a different example, like, you know, the first um some, something like the first 15 people who had a liver transplant died. Yeah. And if you did that now in a sort of clinical trial, it would have got shot down a lot before the 16th person, let's say. Yeah. But, you know, so that's not about energy. That's about, you know, the tolerance for a different thing has changed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it all ties together, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess just to quickly round off, we've been talking about evidence for examples of stagnation. Seems like there's a bunch of examples in art. So tell me if I'm wrong. I don't feel like I'm living through some period where some big new genre of music is being developed that we'll look back on in 20 years' time and realize this is a huge deal. In the sense that, you know, if I was living in the 50s, like jazz is just becoming a thing or whatever it is, right? Like hip hop in the 90s and so on. And rather it seems like maybe genres are being recycled and recombined. I'm not saying that music is bad. I would say that the kind of rate of excellent music being produced is maybe as high as it's ever been. But it feels like the big musical ideas are running out. Do you think that's correct? Or am I just kind of, have I got this kind of nostalgia? I think you're 100% correct. Um, and yeah, I, I, I absolutely think that that is a pattern that you can see so clearly in music and that you can pretty much see everywhere in the cultural field. Um, so yeah, so you know, the, the story of music in the 20th century was a story of repeated revolutions where some new kind of music came along, it transformed its sort of subculture, it had a totally new sound that was really shocking. Um, an example I give in the book is um, the, the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, a really 
experimental, you know, extraordinary piece of music that that literally initiated a riot in the theater in Paris when it was premiered. Um, you know, people went out dressed up in their evening wear and and then, you know, by the end of the evening were sort of throwing seats at the orchestra. And I, I think the question is, is, you know, what music would now inspire the same level of just absolute shock and outrage? I mean, it's it's almost inconceivable that a musical form would. But, you know, even up till probably the late 20th century, it was possible for music to viscerally shock people by just the nature of its sound. Um, But that isn't really true. You know, most of the music that is around today could have been around 20 years ago. Um, You know, you're looking at evolutions on a theme. And I I say this to someone, I love music and I love new music and I love sort of really difficult, interesting music. Um, But I don't think we're seeing that kind of revolution. And I think that's true in things like cinema, in terms of novel writing, in terms of philosophy, or in terms of the humanities, even social sciences, um, that we're just not seeing these kind of revolutionary things. We're basically still living off the playbook that is already written. Um, so again, you know, just, just to talk about social sciences as an analogue, just as... Um, in music, say, something like rock and roll came in, absolutely just had this profound cultural impact. Um, At the same time, you've got, in almost any given field, you've got a bunch of thinkers who were just giants in the field who really kind of transformed it. Those figures, you know, most people in most of the fields today just don't see those kind of people as existing anymore. Um, And yeah, the, the music case is perfect. I think it really shows and and it, i don't think it's nostalgia i think it's just a a reckoning with the reality of music which which is being produced in greater quantity and better quality than probably mm-hmm. ever yeah. but the paradigm yeah. shifts aren't coming uh, in case listeners are interested holden konofsky recently wrote a blog post called where is today's beethoven and he's talking about this exact question and i think he comes to what i imagine this is the same conclusion i haven't come seen to. that i need to it's see great that. you should totally yeah. read it yeah and i think the idea he settles on is the same kind of explanation you give for other kinds of stagnation which is this idea is it getting harder to find the low-hanging fish explanation yeah, um, yeah. which is it kind of it's funny to apply it to art because you know like it's not like you're discovering new kinds of art but um there's something to that this is a really interesting point that comes back to the, the explanations for this. And we were talking uh, earlier about, you know, uh, is is kind of science saturated in the sense, has it just done most of the work? And this is a really interesting question in art as well, because take painting. There is like an infinite number of ways that you can apply paint to a canvas, right? You know, that that is an infinite space. But the subset of ways you can apply paint to a canvas that are interesting or beautiful to a human being are much smaller than that infinite space. And the further subset of combinations of of paint on a canvas that will change visual culture and art history is possibly a finite set or is a small set that you might have taken a lot of those things. So painting, like knowledge might be an infinite space but that doesn't mean that the important moves within it are infinite as well yeah so let's maybe um spend some more time here then talking about you know what these causes are across these like different fields and i guess the the big thing that we've like hit on again and again is this idea of like diminishing marginal returns or i guess low-hanging fish as the the new like phrase we've kind of coined here um 
And another thing we've, we've kind of like mentioned at other times is this uh, concern around like risk aversion or, uh, you know, safety and like just not taking maybe as many like outlandish bets or like chances uh, and, and failures as we used to. Just on like a big picture, are there any other like big blocks that, um, you know, with you think we, we've missed here or that you would like want to elaborate about? And then let's maybe delve into these uh, a bit more. Well, so I'd, I'd describe the two big blocks like this. There are issues that come from our sort of the structure of the history of ideas and where we are in that structure at an advanced stage. So there are those. And then there are ideas that come from the kind of, sorry, there are blockers that come from the kind of society that we've built. Yeah, so one general explanation you give in the book for why big ideas seem to be undersupplied is what often gets called a kind of free rider problem um, or a public good problem where maybe the social benefit, that is a benefit to everyone from coming up with a great idea, is enormous. But the benefit that accrues to me is maybe some small fraction of that. Then it might not be worth coming up with the idea, even if the world benefits enormously more than the cost of, of the idea. Yeah. Is that roughly right? Yeah, right. I think I think there is now pretty strong evidence that that kind of free rider effect is is at work in the production of ideas. And, and several economists have, have tried to um, quantify that. And, you know, they've sort of estimated that, you know, in, in so, some people have come up with some pretty extreme um, measures of it that, you know, suggest that there's just a fraction of a percent um, of the sort of total economic gain of an idea it accrues to the inventor or even the business that that does it. Um, and I do think that's a problem. I, I think that's a problem because of the kind of demands that are put on businesses whereby they are expected to show a return on all of their activities right. And unless they can demonstrate that they are maximizing those returns in, in often a very blunt way, um, outside of a few tech companies that, that do effectively have more leeway, most companies just can't do that. So that, that, that free rider problem is a really real effect. And, you know, it, it's, it's an absurd, like, like all free rider problems, it is sort of absurd because it's obviously in the world's interests to be delivering these things. Yeah. Well, so this is what I was going to pick up on is that if this wants to be an explanation of stagnation in particular, that is why the generation of new ideas isn't just slow, but slowing down, um, seems to me that maybe you need to explain why the free rider problem was less of a problem, for instance, 50 or 100 years ago. Um. I think, well, and, and I really want to say, I think they had a lot of different problems back then. Right, yeah. But I think um, businesses and organizations were much freer to pursue uh, a whole bunch of ends, whereas now I think there is just more pressure on especially businesses, but also institutions, un universities to sort of show um, that they are delivering on their investments according right. to a quite a narrow set right. of metrics. So, you know... Hundred years ago, places you know, some, something like say Oxford University it had hardly any funding, but it had hardly any accountability. It didn't you know really have mm. to say, oh well, we've done this with the money. If you were just a private business, you could do whatever you liked with your money, and and there there was nothing really to bother you. And even if there were shareholders, they they weren't sitting in on the quarterly earnings call saying, well, you know, we we want to make sure that you're doing what what you need to be doing to keep the share price at a certain level. 
Um, so I just think it's it's that demonstration of return and that constant obsession with a narrow set of metrics has become way more pronounced. I see. So the idea is it's harder to capture a lot of the social benefit of new ideas once the metrics that interested parties are measuring you by narrow, and they have narrowed over time for whatever reason. Exa- exactly. And, and it's almost like, well, I think previously people weren't even trying to capture any metrics, so it was a much fuzzier question. Whereas now, you know, everyone, everything is being measured constantly by someone, so everyone is optimizing to that metric. And if you don't, if, mm. if you're like collateral damage, yeah. then you are. Yeah, it, and it, ideas often are. It would be like, yeah, like a bit perverse if like not having anyone look at like, you know, efficiency or like output or something means that, you know, things are better than, you know, if we set like whatever metric. But I think I definitely like, yeah, the, the premise seems to like seem intuitive that, you know, being overly stringent on this or, or being like overly narrow in like what goals are and if this is like, you know, your stocks going up or like your next like quarterly like profit returns like going up or something. Yeah. And then that means that you can't invest, right? in like the research side of like your R&D or something. And well, yeah, and I, I think to some extent it's it's almost performative. It's just that you know pe- people are doing what what they feel is is wanted or expected of them, and they almost feel like you know this, there's this pressure. So yeah, I suppose on the the research side as well. If I'm a research university and I'm optimizing for next year's university rankings, um, then in makes sense that maybe I will funnel resources into something like marketing, PR. Um, well, or, or yeah, and because I, I think like this sort of the equivalent bureaucratic pathology is, is even worse than in, in the sort of financialized sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just that you funnel money into marketing or whatever. It's that you will funnel um, research funds into the areas that you think are going to be mo- give you most sort of return in your university rankings so you know it's university will do that but then so will researchers you know they need to get jobs they need to get their next grant so you know when they're looking at what kind of research to pursue they have to factor in those things you know nobody can do what max planck did um or you know what somebody like a philosopher like Derek Parfit did, you can't just take 20 years to, to write a book or a paper now. You know, you're constantly having to go for what's going to keep moving you forward. And, and if you take colossal risks with that, then you won't get funded or you might not get the job. I suppose very quickly, this is an idea that has come up in the world of effective altruism. Um, and I think it just totally transfers here, which is if you just do some risky project, that if, where if it succeeds, there's an enormous amount of upside the social benefits are enormous, um, then how good that could be in expectation is more or less unlimited. The world's a very big place. But how good it could be for you is pretty much capped because the prestige, the status, the acclaim, um, this is all more or less um, capped, or at least it's not kind of linear with how much good you do. And so if you're just a little bit kind of um, self-interested, which is fine, presumably most people are, then you should expect that people are going to be biased against the really ambitious, really high upside projects. And I think that just applies to like risky, ambitious research. 
Um, I guess also like the same works like in reverse, right? Like if you think about like failure, right? Cost to yourself mm -hmm. versus cost to society. Like the cost of society, like if a scientist fails, you know, and like their research ends up being like a complete dead end and was just a speculation. It's like, oh, okay, we have like many other scientists, but for that single scientist, if they stake like all their reputation and all their prestige and stuff, that's like your that's, career. that's rubbish, right? And I guess, yeah, like it's easy to say, right? That we need to like be less risk averse and take more chances and stuff. But if we don't also have, you know, the social or like the institution you know conditions in place to actually make these things like feasible for people to to take chances yeah i mean absolutely true and and you know it's important to say as well this isn't just like speculation that this kind of stuff happens you know there's there's, there's now a really developed body of of literature around trying to kind of quantify what's happening and you know that shows that um research that is less exploratory uh, in sort of really kind of frontier terms can get more citations and you know it's when when job committees are looking to hire they're looking at citations above all so that's a real incentive to just pursue a certain kind of work and and so on i i think this is it's massive and it's ingrained and then you know, all of that dovetails with what we were talking about earlier, which is like the increased specialization that comes. So, you know, you have people both specializing down to tiny, 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 tiny niches. And then within those tiny, tiny niches, feeling like they can't take colossal risks with their own career. And that that there is the research ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That's really not ideal if you want to be having some kind of radical, mad, game-changing idea. Yeah, okay. So... There's one big question that I've been meaning to ask about all of this, which is you might take a kind of long-termist perspective where you think about what kinds of things today might stand to improve our prospects over the very long-term future, right? And when you take that perspective, it begins to look like the overall trajectory we trace over the future, the very long-run future, potentially matters more than whether we can speed along the trajectory we're currently on by a few extra years or decades, right? So on this view, I'm curious whether just uniformly accelerating progress across the board is actually good on net, right? So one reason you might think it's not is if accelerating progress across the board also speeds up the rate at which we discover potentially dangerous technologies or, you know, the rate at which those technologies become more and more accessible to less uh, trustworthy people, um, that's a case where it could just be bad. So I'm wondering whether you've thought about that kind of worry. Um, yes, is the short <laughs> answer. And that that was a real question that I, I kind of kept revolving at the back of my mind is, you know, the one of the kind of core arguments here is that we are generating or delivering fewer big ideas and that this is, is not a good thing. Um, and that, you know, things that, will accelerate big ideas are, are broadly to be welcomed and things that stop it are are broadly to be booed um but it's really just so plain to me that there's there's nothing like innately good about big ideas we spent right, a right. lot of time talking about nuclear technologies as a sort of good example of a big idea but doesn't mean it's a good big idea because <laughs> you know means we live in a world where we've given ourselves the capacity to just destroy all of humanity i mean that's crazy that's not something clearly not something to be unambiguously welcome <laughs> um so many big ideas are are dangerous um or have the potential you know to to have 
really dangerous outcomes. Arguably, the, the critique of Silicon Valley is that it, it's just generated tons of big ideas, but never really taken responsibility for the consequences of them, many of which are hugely negative. Um, the key for me, I think, is, is the way you say it. Are big ideas to be welcomed on net? And I think although there are loads of clear downsides on net, they are simply because um, big ideas are the ultimate kind of foundation stones of our civilization. And they, they represent the ideas that, that then kind of form the parameters of, of what we work in. So, so without them, we would not have any of the good things that we have. Um, if we stagnate, you know, I think that is probably a recipe for disaster. Um, right. It may I be more risky. It, I, I, yeah, basically, of of the two risks, I think we know for sure that every civilization that basically has stagnated in the past has collapsed, um, and you know they've always had catastrophic collapses uh, sooner or later. And I think that would would probably be the fate of ours in time. You know, to go back to energy. You know, that unless we have really good answers on energy. How how are we gonna say to are we gonna say to everyone in India? Oh no no, you're not you're not able to have the lifestyle that people in the global north have enjoyed for fifty years. I mean, how how are you gonna realistically say that? And then of course there's just the the whole plethora of challenges that we potentially face. Some of which are sort of human created. Some of which are just potential natural disasters. Without kind of major fundamental progress put that in inverted commas um we're just asking for disaster so net mm. i think we need big ideas but no they're not to be unambiguously hailed as good well it, this makes me like think of what we were just talking about before and i guess like metrics you know or the the ways that you need to like you know nuance what you are like actually like measuring or like at least be aware of it where when we're thinking about growth or any statistic that captures growth or technology be a total factor productivity or patents or whatever all of these things aggregate individual inventions. And I guess, um, you know, you can go two ways uh, here. Like one way would be like to evaluate each of these single inventions of is this like on net good for humanity or not that we invent this. And then, you know, we can leave it up to the inventor or the funder or, um, you know, some some way that like social input gets given down on this like single invention. But then we also need to be aware that as you were uh, talking about just there, that these things are like cross-cutting as well. And especially if we're changing things on this higher level of how society works or how we're viewing big ideas or inventions as a whole, then we don't, it's not just about like the individual interventions that, you know, we might have in mind that they will lead to, but how these things cross-cut. And I guess then we need to think about these like things on net too. But there definitely seem to be like two components here almost. Yeah, and you know, that just seems to me a really, really difficult problem that I don't even begin to have uh, good answers to, to be honest. Um, you know, I think there's there's one this one big problem is how you, you sort of originate and then give purchase to these big ideas. And then it's almost equally the case there's a problem of how you manage them. Um, and yeah, it, to be honest, in the book, I just didn't even really go there because... I mean, you know, th this is the kind of question that that you guys are working on all the time. Effectively, that's the sort of mission of of you know places like Future of Humanity Institute and various other things is is just to ask, you know, how how the hell are we going to deal with the kind of ideas that we're rolling out? 
Yeah. Uh, I'll really quickly like flag this as well because I know we don't have enough time to like really get into the the depth of this. But there's this paper written by a guy called like Leopold Aschenbrenner as well on like how X risk and like growth kind of intersect. And you know, as I said, this is probably like worth worth its own episode. So I'll like only like really crudely uh, give an example here. But if you think about like let's say that there is a one percent chance, right, that like an asteroid will crash into the world at some point, and we just treat this as like kind of exogenous. Um, and if we just keep things as being, we never and you know grow and like invest in like asteroid deflecting technology or like what kind of have you at some point and if we just stagnate at some point that will just like hit us the only way i guess is to kind of like move forward and then hope that even if that growth is risky um it's at least better than just like kind of waiting and then it like hitting you there yeah um which i think is really important but you know there's um joel mokir um the economic uh, sort of economist and economic historian you know he basically says you know once you start on the sort of road of you know, scientific development, industrialization. It's like a roller coaster where getting off is worse than staying off. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I suppose also, whatever the size of the pie is, if the pie is growing, then you have more cause to cooperate rather than try to fight over the, the size of your slice compared to your neighbor's slice. So and you have more, more resources and, and so on um, about how, how to, to manage the, the problems that you create. So, you know, and again, like, I, I sort of argue that I think a lot of the big ideas in the 21st century will be about dealing with the big ideas that we've created. And, you know, a cl- classic one mentioned it right at the beginning of, of the podcast was, you know, how do we govern a technology like AI? Well, actually, I don't think anyone really knows. That that needs a big idea in sort of politics, in, in law, in um, ethical philosophy. How how do you do that, both practically and uh, sort of conceptually? And that needs a big idea. One very last point, and I think this is trite and obvious, uh, but presumably you can kind of direct what kind of ideas um, we generate to some extent. So maybe we shouldn't so much fund new ideas and autonomous weapons research. And maybe the idea you mentioned about governing AI for common goods that seems worth looking into. And sure, we can't anticipate the exact ideas we'll come up with because then we will have already come up with them. But I think that that obscures the fact that you can at least kind of um, channel progress in a good-seeming <laughs> direction. Um, but I thought it might be good to wrap up the conversation by talking about just ideas to get things back on track. Yeah, <laughs> I'm assuming that is a good thing. And then we can go for some final questions. In the book, you point out that there are some causes for hope, maybe, that this stagnation might be inflecting into a new period of of progress. What are those um, indications? So I think there are a load of new technologies that are coming in that are quite clearly accelerating knowledge. and, And AI, I think, would be the most important of those. You know, I'd just point to two things that have come out of DeepMind. Um, one is work that they've done that has effectively solved a 50-year grand challenge in biology, the protein folding problem. Um, and that's been uh, an enormous thing. Of, you know, Nobody's really had a reliable means to understand how a protein is going to form. You, know, you can see what DNA it's got, but that doesn't mean you know what shape it's going to create. And the shape is critical to the function. So... You know, that, that's that been this huge thing. They've had these competitions to see who can predict it. Um, nobody had had really got that far. DeepMind comes in with some, you know, really powerful machine learning techniques and 
effectively cracks that. Uh, then even just a few weeks ago, DeepMind has now collaborated with a bunch of math mathematicians, and they've started to, to basically show how AI can come up with some really radical, interesting new ideas in mathematics. And, and you're seeing this across the board. And, you know, some of the things about machine learning are just really interesting. So, you know, there was this um, paper that looked at um, an interesting machine learning algorithm that effectively absorbs something like 3 million papers from, you know, the very start of the 20, 20th century right up to the present day. It absorbed 3 million papers in um, material science. And based on that, they showed that it could predicted new kinds of material that have been developed. So, you know, you, you, cut, you cut it off at a certain point and it predicts stuff that has happened in science and then is also predicting stuff into the future. And even from that, like, you know, it, various things like emerged from it. it you know, it's sort of automatic. It, nobody gave it the periodic table, but it just learns the periodic table. Yeah. Um, you know, no human, we talked about the burden of knowledge. There's just so much to know that nobody can really kind of grapple with just the sheer mass of information. But here's, here's just effectively one AI system that um, can read three, three million papers and then really cut down on that. Um, it can generate new kinds of music, new kinds of text. So tools like that, tools in biotech, um, you know, maybe even, God help me, something like the metaverse, you know, um, it's just all suggesting that there is new ways of doing things that even 10 years ago would not have been feasible, um, that now are becoming feasible, um, that moreover, these tools are attracting massive amounts of investment that, you know, really could be game changing. There are a lot of people who are thinking about the potential applications, as well as engaging in exciting frontier research. So I think that is really interesting. Super. All right, let's go through some final questions to wrap up. Um, I think one important question to ask here is, it seems to me there's a lot of work to be done. Um, for instance, in coming up with new models for grant making in the sciences and in academia and whatever else. So for anyone listening to this, who's maybe in a position to do useful research here or maybe help on the on the funding side, what are some ideas you're especially um, important about that which people could potentially get involved with? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I, I just think the whole space of it is really, really broken. And, you know, I think it. I often used to think, oh, it'd be great to be an academic. Um, I, I really never think that anymore because I think almost everyone is not able to pursue the actual kind of research that they really want to pursue. Um, so I just think we need radical experimentation across the board in how research is conducted and how it's financed. And yet, whether that could be an idea like a grant lottery, where you just don't, you don't even really look in too much detail, as long as things can, can meet certain criteria, you then just assign and see what happens. I think we need much more open-ended uh, grants, much more about funding people, um, much more that is is just potentially just opened up in various ways to, to different sort of voices. There, there are a ton of proposals out there. You know, I, d I don't have any original proposal, but there are, whole, there are loads of people who are basically coming up with interesting ways that this could happen. Just make it happen. I suppose just to rattle off some, some names as a kind of point for someone to Google, um, uh, Tyler Cowen set up Emergent Ventures, which is doing something in line with what you're suggesting. 
also fast grants. Yeah. Um, also, there's new, I think, research uh, organization called ARC or ARC. Um, also, the new science initiative that Alexi Guzzi has yeah. been involved with. Um, there's a kind of mini movement coalescing, as far as I can tell, which is very exciting. There, there are a lot of people who are kind of on the interstices of technology and academia and research, but who who aren't sort of in any one place who are looking at this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all of those things are just brilliant examples. Super. Um, penultimate question. Which three books or whatever else, articles, podcasts, would you recommend to anyone who's been listening to this and wants to find out more? I would recommend a podcast by somebody called Ben Reinhardt. And he has a podcast, Ideas Machines, which um, just, just really focuses in on these questions. What are the blockers to having new ideas? And, you know, why are they there? What can we do about it? What are the interesting experiments and initiatives that are going to overcome it? Um, he's got a lot of interesting ideas and, and his guests always do. And so when I was uh, researching the book, I'd often be there working on these questions that I thought were pretty much the most important questions in the world. But occasionally you just think, God, am I the only person who's actually interested in this and thinks it's important? And so it was nice to always be reminded that um, other people were too. Um, I, I would then suggest everyone looks up uh, an economist called Matt Clancy, who has an incredible resource. Um, his, his blog is New Things Under the Sun, but he's recently created a huge resource. And this is just dedicated to looking at all of the work and the, the economics literature around questions of innovation, where, how new ideas are created. And it is a goldmine, and it's just a brilliant summation um, of, of everything. Um, and then on the book, um, there are so many, but I mean... I would say uh, Tyler Cowen's The Great Stagnation was one of the books that really um, led me on on this road and is is worth looking at. But, you know, there are just too many books that I read. So I, I'm just going to recommend the book I'm reading at the minute as well, which is by David Graeber, um, who has who was an anthropologist and has written about these questions, and uh, an archaeologist, David Wengro, called uh, The Dawn of Everything. And it is a incredible revisionist work of history and so it's it's not connected to to my book but i just uh rather than pick one of the many books i'm just going to suggest people look at that because it will change it is potentially a big idea a rare big new idea in that book fantastic and we'll also obviously plug your own book uh, that you recently wrote called human frontiers the future of big ideas in an age of small thinking uh, very last question is where can people find you and the book online? Um, I can be found uh, on Twitter at Michael Basker. Uh, I, you know, if you uh, Google me, you'll find me. And yeah, do say hello. Fantastic, Michael Basker. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> that was Michael Basker on stagnation and progress in world-changing ideas. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Michael. There you'll find links to all the resources that were mentioned along with hopefully a full transcript of the conversation if you get something out of this podcast the best gifts you can give us are to either share it with others who might also enjoy it or even better to leave a review or a comment wherever you're listening to this apple podcasts or whatever i've got to say that reviews make such a difference first of all we know what kinds of things people get out of the podcast but also they help 
the podcast become more visible for new listeners. Also, if you have constructive feedback, there is a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. And there is also a start rating form on the top and bottom of each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. Thanks very much for listening.